You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Picture this. It's 800 AD. You're a goat farmer, herder, whatever. You're out there with your goats. They're eating some of these red little berry things. You come back in for the day and your goats just won't go to sleep. What the heck is going on? Coffee is what's going on, friend. Coffee. Well, hello and how you doing, friend? It's TK. We're here together, getting our weekly dose of For the Love of History. And we have a microphone. Yes, I I know, I had a microphone before, but it was inside of my laptop. Now I have a microphone on its own. It's its own thing. So we are stepping it up in the world. We're going places, but enough of the announcements. Let's get to it. What are we talking about today? The thing that fuels the world. Joe, Java, Brew, Go Juice, Jitter Juice, Bean Juice, Brain Juice, High Octane, Liquid Energy, Rocket Fuel, and C8H10N402, or the caffeine molecule. But I just like to call it coffee. Yes, that's right. We're here for the history of coffee, so grab yourself a cup or, you know, tea if you're gross. Uh, just kidding, I also love tea. Grab whatever beverage you choose and get comfy and let's do this. I know you're sitting there thinking to yourself, TK is making some pretty hefty claims. I know we're friends and all, but dang, coffee? Little brown bean juice really fuels the whole world? Yes, yes it does, and I'm gonna tell you why. First, two things. Number one, coffee beans are not beans, they're seeds. And number two, coffee has had its caffeinated little hands in every major event in the world since 800 AD. I'm serious. It was a means for cultural exchange. It boosted colonization. It caused the age of enlightenment and fueled revolutions. It was involved in every American war since before America was America. It fueled industrial revolutions all over the world, established global finance and global trade. Also, It provides a platform to eliminate exploitation of coffee farmers. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Let's start from the beginning. Where do these little seed beans come from? And how did they make their happy little way into my coffee cup every morning? Coffee beans originate from Ethiopia, specifically the Gala tribe. There's lots of tales about how coffee was discovered, but my favorite and the one that is most supported is the one that involves goats. In 800 AD, a goat herder farmer, I think it's a herder, right? It's a herder. A goat herder named Kaldi was out there in the fields of Ethiopia with his goats. They were munching away on this red berry thing and Kaldi was like, yeah, it's fine. It's, it's great. They're goats. They eat things. But they were coming back to the village and then the goats were supposed to go to bed, but the goats didn't go to bed. Kaldi was very uh, curious as to why his goats were misbehaving. So he went back to the spot and looked at these red berries and he ate one himself as one does. <laughs> Just pop it in your mouth. 
and found that he got energy from this little red bean. And thus, the coffee bean was discovered. It very quickly spread and it moved into Yemen in the 15th century, where it took on a whole new life and became central to their religious rituals. By the 16th century, coffee was in Egypt, Syria, Turkey, Persia, Damascus, and Baghdad. Coffee houses started popping up all over those areas, with the first one in Constantinople in 1475. The first era of coffee house would change people's relationship with coffee and also change people's relationship with each other. It was not just for religious ceremonies anymore. Coffee became a catalyst for so many other things. In Constantinople, Egypt, and Turkey, for example, in the coffee houses there, people took part in community discussion. They watched musical performances. They held council meetings. They watched, like, other kinds of performance. Plays, musicals, what have you. And they kept up with news and gossip. Coffee houses were called schools of the wise, and they became the center of those communities. Even now in those countries, coffee and coffee houses are really important to the culture. And if you ever have a chance to drink Turkish coffee, drink it. Drink it. It's so good. It's one of my favorite kinds of coffee ever. Okay. Moving on. So, it would take a hot minute for coffee to reach Europe, but eventually did as priests and pilgrims and traders and adventurers traveled to these places for one reason or another. Coffee entered Europe through Venice, but the clergy there was pissed about the bitter drink of Satan. That's what they called it, the bitter drink of Satan. They were so pressed that they brought it to the Pope thinking that the Pope would like damn coffee. Like he would try it and just be like, no, this is indeed Satan's bitter drink. <laughs> but Pope Clement VIII tried it, loved it, and gave it the old papal approval. He was down with the coffee. Apparently God was too. <laughs> so it kind of backfired on them and really just promoted the spread of coffee even more. In the 1600s, Europe was all about that coffee life. The Pope was down, King Louis XIV was down, rich people in Italy were all, were all about it. The Dutch were even super into coffee. And yes, the French were too. I almost forgot about the French. Everyone was like, we're here for it, give it to us, give us more. But there was one problem. There were no coffee trees outside of the Arabian Peninsula and Northern Africa. Europe had no control over the beloved beans. They were at the mercy of the growers and Europe did not like that. And thus began the great bean race of the late 1600s. In my opinion, the great bean race is way more exciting than the space race, in my opinion, just in my opinion. Coffee affects me more than NASA does on a daily basis, okay? I have my reasons. <laughs> just kidding. I love you, NASA. 
So, the Arabian Peninsula and Northern Africa kept a tight watch on their beans because they knew as soon as one tree got out there in the world in the grubby little hands of the European colonizers, it would be all over for them. There are so many stories of traders and diplomats and military people trying to sneak beans out of these countries. There's one story of a guy from India named Baba Budan who strapped seven seeds on his little tum-tum and tried smuggling them back to India. But they were roasted so, so they couldn't grow. You, you, you couldn't grow a, a coffee tree from a roasted coffee bean. So that failed. But the Dutch were real, real sneaky. And somehow they were actually able to get full baby trees out of the Arabian Peninsula. They were the first ones to get a hold of the baby trees. And in 1714, the mayor of Amsterdam presented a gift of a young coffee plant to King Louis XIV of France. And that's how it spread to France. The king ordered it to be planted in the Royal Botanical Garden in Paris. And the great bean race continues. In 1723, a young naval officer named Gabriel de Clieu obtained a little seedling that came from King Louis XIV's plant. And he took it on a little voyage. It was uh, complete with horrendous weather, a saboteur who tried to destroy the seedling, and a pirate attack. It should be made into a TV show. But... Gabriel managed to transport it safely to Martinique. And once it was planted, the seedling not only thrived, but it is credited with the spread of over 18 million coffee trees on the island of Martinique in the next 50 years. Even more incredible is that the seedling was the parent of all coffee trees throughout the Caribbean, South, and Central America. Now let's move on to Brazil. Brazilian coffee owes its existence to Francisco de Melo Paleta, who was sent by the Emperor of Portugal to French Guyana to get coffee seedlings. The French were not willing to share. They were not all about it. But the French governor's wife was just taken aback by how handsome Francisco was. And with a name like Francisco, girl, who can blame her? She gave him a large bouquet of flowers when he left and buried inside the bouquet were coffee seeds to begin what is today a billion dollar industry. So now coffee was in the hands of the colonizers and where the colonizers go, slavery follows. And I promise you, we will dive into that subject more thoroughly at the end of the episode, so stay tuned. So now that the world had coffee, what did we humans do with it? Boy howdy, did we do a lot. I gave you a laundry list of things that coffee had a hand in at the beginning, so let's break it down and talk about a few of my favorite. Let's begin with the Enlightenment period because it's so fun. So before coffee was introduced into Europe, what do you think people drank for their uh, morning beverage, for their morning meal? 
Anybody? Anybody? Yes. Beer and wine. They drank beer and wine. Water was nasty and it was bad for you and beer and wine were safe. So you had morning beer soup, you had a lunch wine, and you had a dinner whiskey or a brandy or what have you. People were just drunk all the time, like 24-7 drunk before the Enlightenment period because water was just dangerous. You couldn't drink it. So coffee came in and sobered people up. And when it sobered people up, it sparked all sorts of new ideas and coffee provided a location for people to exchange these ideas in the coffee houses. Lots of things began in these coffee houses. For example, revolutions. Now that people were uh, not as drunk as often, (laughs) they could collaborate and make ideas. Also, side note, did people just have headaches all day long because they were either drinking coffee or alcohol? Because I would have such a massive headache all the time. But anyways, people were talking in these coffee houses. There was an unprecedented mix of people. But when I say mix of people, I really mean rich white guys and poor white guys. It's just that was the time. Occasionally, women were allowed into these coffee houses and it became more normal for the white women to come into the coffee houses. So that's the kind of mixing that we're talking about. But nonetheless, people got to talking and there was a lot of talk of revolution and not being happy with the way things were being run. People were pissed about King Charles II. Soon the Americans were fed up with the Brits because of taxes and such. And then the French were like, don't leave us out. We also want a revolution too. So everybody was having revolutions. And all the planning was done in coffee houses and cafes, many of which still stand today. For example, the Green Dragon Coffee House, which was where the Boston Tea Party was planned. So now people have revolted. What's next? The war. In America, before America was America, the Revolutionary War was won in part by coffee. Coffee represented patriotism. Coffee also boosted morale. And coffee was cheaper. All of these things motivated the soon-to-be Americans. Then we move on to the world wars. In both wars, coffee science kind of took off and instant coffee became a standard part of MREs, meals ready to eat, that both boosted morale and kept people alert. When soldiers came back, they were like, yes, coffee. And then their families were like, yes, coffee, let's have more coffee. So after World War II, thousands of coffee shops and then eventually the American diner popped up. And by the Vietnam War, coffee was such a staple of the American military and culture that soldiers reportedly burned C4 explosives in order to make it in the jungle. I love coffee, but I don't know if I could drink jungle helmet C4 coffee. I mean, but desperate times call for desperate measures. But the list continues, my friend. Let's move on to industrial revolutions. How were those overworked, underpaid immigrants supposed to stay awake for 7,000 hours while operating heavy machines that could kill them? Duh, coffee. And those tiny little child laborers needed to stay awake. No afternoon nap for those babies. What did they do? 
they drank coffee. And while we're at it, let's just talk about global finance real quick. Remember those coffee houses and cafes? Many global financial leaders and banks were founded in coffee shops. The insurance company Lloyd's of London, for instance, came from the Lloyd's coffee shop in the 18th century, where soldiers and merchants would meet to discuss their affairs. Without coffee, Wall Street wouldn't exist. Both the New York Stock Exchange and the Bank of New York began in coffee houses on Wall Street. The first home of the New York Stock Exchange was the Tontine Coffee House. At that time, it was located on the corners of Wall and Water Streets. Business for the New York Stock Exchange was done there from 1794 to 1817. The Bank of New York was established in the Merchant's Coffee House in the 1780s, and it was also located at the corners of Wall and Water Street at that time. See? I told you! Coffee is literally everywhere. No weird bean seed juice. Literally no life. But unfortunately, the story of coffee is not all fun and hyped up goats and secret tummy seed smuggling. It's also filled with stories of great and terrible violence, slavery, exploitation, and just some downright bullshit. I cannot in good conscience candy coat the history of coffee, so we're gonna talk about it. We're gonna talk about the relationship between coffee and enslaved labor. Coffee was first introduced to Europe on the island of Malta. It was introduced there through the enslavement and trading of human lives. Those traders, air quotes, that we talked about earlier, yeah, they were enslavers. They traded in humans and just so happened to bring coffee beans with them. Turkish Muslims who had been enslaved previously were imprisoned by the Knights of St. John in 1565 during the Siege of Malta, and those same knights forced the Turkish Muslims to make their traditional beverage for them. By 1820, there were an estimated 2 million enslaved people in Portuguese-controlled Brazil, whose average life expectancy once arriving was 7 years. 7 fucking years. I have no words for that. <clears throat> European colonizers would also come to introduce the plant to their colonies in Asia and South America. Portugal brought coffee to Brazil, France brought coffee to Vietnam, and Spain to Colombia. Unspeakable violence was done to these enslaved individuals that eventually made Brazil to be the world's biggest coffee producer by the 1900s. In the early years of coffee production, and even now, the exploitation of coffee farmers is real, and it's real fucking terrible. I have left some resources for you guys to learn about that a little bit more if you feel so inclined. You know, it's going to be in the show notes. But fear not, my friend. I would never, ever leave you without hope for change and a positive final thought. Worldwide, the cultivation and production of coffee supports more than 120 million workers and their families, and that is great, especially in those very rural, very mountainous areas where coffee loves to grow. But here's the thing. A lot of major companies, such as Folgers and Nescafe and Maxwell House, I don't have any sponsors. So I'm gonna throw these guys under the bus. They have some pretty freaking shady coffee purchasing practices. 
But there are things you can do to help support those farmers. Number one, don't buy from Folgers, Maxwell, and Nescafe. There you go. Really, honestly, and truly, buying fair trade is awesome. And I know, I know, just let me get on my soapbox for like a minute, okay? Buying fair trade is a little bit more expensive than buying Folgers, of course. But when you're buying fair trade products, it doesn't just include you know, the money that goes directly to the farmers. When you buy fair trade coffee, it also helps fund community outreach programs, community development funds, and it helps the environment because fair trade coffee growers are more environmentally friendly with their production methods. And that should be reason enough to pay like three extra dollars if you can. If you cannot afford it, I understand, I know. I got it. If it's not available in your area, it's okay. There's a million bajillion other things that you can do to support the environment and fair trade. It's okay. I'm done with my soapbox. But I will leave some links if you're interested in ways that you can help the coffee and fair trade community. Things are getting better, you guys. Things are getting better, I promise you. In the words of Jose Sete, the executive director of the International Coffee Organization, coffee is as popular as it is because it's a social currency. It brings people together. And I agree. I 100% agree. And it's just amazing that all this history came from a goat getting a little hyped up on coffee beans. And that is all I have for you today, friend. Thank you so much for tuning in once again this week. Uh, I just wanted to make a little announcement. I am doing a small giveaway just to say thank you um, for all the love and support that I have been getting since the beginning of this podcast. How to enter is over on the For the Love of History Instagram. That's at For the Love of underscore history. If you want to participate in the giveaway, you can find out how over there. If you don't want to participate, that's okay. We all show our love in different ways. So with that, I will see you next week where we talk about birthdays, why we celebrate them, how have the celebrations changed over the years, because next week is my birthday. (laughs) So look forward to that episode, and I will see you next week. Bye! Why is there a metronome right now? Okay. <laughs>